Um, this is Catherine Lambrecht, uh, Chicago Foodways Roundtable, Culinary Historians, Greater Midwest Foodways. Just pick one out of the hat and that's what I am today. And the Highland Park Historical Society. That's what we are today. In fact, um, our program tonight, the Viennese cuisine prior to 1938 was inspired by Nancy Webster, our archivist here. Um, she had found an article uh, or publicity from the University of Illinois and forwarded it to me and I went, this is an interesting talk for the Highland Park Historical Society crowd because in Highland Park, we do have um, considerable uh, Jewish population. And then in, for the culinary historians of Chicago and, you know, pulled the rabbit out of the hat. Uh, this is also an interesting program. So I combined the two, saved myself some trouble. How's that? Um, and in addition, the other piece of inspiration was Mr. Edgar Rose. He was a longtime member of Culinary Historians of Chicago. Uh, when we had the, the Oxford Encyclopedia of American Food and Drink, he wrote the chapter on pecans. And today happens to be, according <laughs> to God knows who, uh, it's pecan pie day. And he made a very good pecan pie. Um, and his recipe did not have corn syrup. It was brown sugar. And if you want a copy, just let me know. It could be it's on the Culinary Historian's website. I'm not sure at the moment. Um, but... Unfortunately, he went to have it at the end of December. And that was really sad because I thought he could be uh, an interesting person for uh, our speaker tonight to interview because he was there at the time that she's talking about. Our program tonight, Viennese cuisine prior to 1938, there were some more hot button words I could have used, but they tend to attract flies and I, sorry, they tend to attract people that I don't necessarily want to be interacting with. But Suzanne Bellavari is an archivist for the faculty papers at the University of Illinois Archives, previously worked as a Holocaust restitution historian and an archivist for the Jewish community in Vienna. And she happens to be Viennese. Um, Suzanne, I'm going to turn it over to you now. Hello, everyone. Good evening. Thank you for being here and for inviting me to talk to you tonight. The topic of today will be the famous Viennese cuisine before Hitler. That means in Austria before March 38. And I'll show how this city's cuisine has been a collective product and legacy of Viennese Jews and non-Jews from the late 1770s to 1938. In my talk, I will discuss journalistic accounts and early emancipated restaurants, the absence of Jewish Viennese cookbooks, popular, even anti-Semitic culinary portrayals, and three exemplary food encounters and biographies from the late 1700s to 1938. I'll look in detail at the iconic Viennese cookbook between the wars and talk about food and culinary encounters in the interwar period and how Jews and non-Jews identified with the Viennese cuisine before and after 38. And we'll talk about the bizarre Aryanization of a cookbook. A quick word on how you may watch this presentation. I use about 200 historical images related to Vienna's food history and the Jewish contribution to it. As you know, food activities were traditionally ignored in historical accounts. They were considered mere sustenance, involved laborers, and was primarily women's work. Originally, it was women's work done at home, which as we know, wasn't really considered work. And so historical imagery of Vienna's food industry, let's call it that, are rare, and even rarer for the Jewish share in it. The images I use directly illustrate my topic. Even a photograph of a bread seller, of an ad for margarine, of an industrial oven or factory either depict Viennese Jews, Jewish-owned companies, or for instance, a product that as in the case of margarine, was actively promoted to all Viennese and to Orthodox Jews. They were most interested in this revolutionary plant-based cooking fat that would make kosher cooking that much easier. And as we now know, less healthy. Visually, the many images make this presentation into a kind of documentary, a static documentary, of course, or a picture book. You can focus on the images or you can treat them as visual background to the story. 
Before we look at this history, though, it's helpful to have some historical context that's relevant to what we're talking about. From the mid-18th century to 1900, Vienna changed from a small, walled-in medieval town to an imperial capital. About 80% of the population in the Austro-Hungarian Empire was still working in agriculture in 1910. And while I don't have time study data yet for Austria, in 1900, U.S. women spent 44 hours a week just in order to prepare food and clean up. This did not include shopping, gardening, jarring, jamming, smoking, and other food tasks. In the past, food production and preparation took an inordinate amount of time. It involved much of the population, and most people had frequently gone hungry during their lives. During the same 150 years, much changed as it relates to food. Stoves went from open fires to closed ranges and then industrialized ovens. This, next to new foods such as beet sugar, potatoes, or Dutch processed chocolate, for instance, changed how and what could be cooked. Kitchens, of course, differed, whether you were poor, wealthy, or an institution. Who prepared food changed from the idealized housewives, servants, and guild members you can see here to workers in larger scale industries. The typical peddlers who once hawked food disappeared and markets, small shops and small restaurants were joined by larger institutions and stores. And as always, what it meant to eat differed hugely by social class and historical event and period. So with this historical background in mind, let's start. Well, it all started in Urbana, Illinois in 1997. In spring of 97, I accepted a job, cleaning the house of a psychologist and a professor of classics. I needed money to pay for my dissertation copies. As it happened, they were Orthodox Jews of Austro-Hungarian and Eastern European background. Because we got along well, we became friends. And because I was quick in learning the obligatory kosher rules, they also had me cook and clean for Orthodox Pesach or Passover, the most restricted kosher cooking there is and I continued to do this for 10 years. When they asked me, however, to bake some of the typical Pesach desserts, I balked at it. I had grown up in Vienna, eating very traditional classical Viennese cuisine and desserts that my mother, an excellent cook, had made for us. My maternal grandmother had run her own small Viennese coffeehouse until 1920. Her apple strudels and other desserts were so renowned that in the 1950s, my much older cousins, would bike about 120 miles across the Alps to Vienna to get a slice. My paternal grandmother had been a pastry chef for an aristocratic family in Styria until about 1918. In this kind of family, the recipes handed to me for Pesach desserts were not palatable. Instead, I leafed through my maternal grandmother and mother's handwritten cookbook, as well as my copy of the quintessential classical Viennese cookbook by Olga and Adolf Hess. And I ended up baking for Orthodox Pesach, what were our quintessential Christmas cookies, and a Viennese hazelnut cake, among others, and I used some of the techniques I'd learned at home. None of these dishes used leavening, flour, or fermentable ingredients, which are all prohibited during Pesach. And while our Pesach guests were delighted and asked for the recipes, I was left with a puzzle. How was it possible? that many of my grandmother's recipes, menus, and those of the archetypical Hess cookbook were applicable to even the strictest Jewish cuisine without needing to be adjusted for kosher cooking. My next thought was, was at the time an unsubstantiated leap. Was our famous historical Viennese cuisine perhaps a collective product, practice, and legacy of Viennese Jews and non-Jews alike? So let's look at what I unearthed over the next 20 years. Since the mid-19th century, the Viennese had proudly identified with their Viennese cuisine, and they widely recognized it as a mixture of culinary traditions across the empire, particularly from Bohemia and Hungary. By 1900, it was the only city-based cuisine known internationally, and it left lasting traces in the arts, publications, as well as in legal and family disputes. The Viennese cuisine was a kind of prism 
for which the Viennese, who took food quite seriously, understood their world before 1938. It defined us in ways that no other art, as it was then described, could. Over these 150 years, the city's Jewish population and community became one of Europe's largest, most successful, and secular, and represented about 10% of the population by 1934. Catholics were about 84%, while Protestants made up 6%. And as it turns out, over these 150 years, Jews and Christians, be they religious, secular, or converted, worked as cooks or taught cooking, wrote cookbooks, produced, sold, and celebrated Vienna's food and culinary culture. It's here that Moritz Safir is a first. As journalist and author who had converted from Judaism, he already recognized the interwoven nature of Viennese cookery by the mid-19th century. His are the only historical, historical descriptions I found about traditional Viennese Jewish dishes. By 1847, Safia lamented how observant Jews and their religious and ethnically based traditional cuisine had disappeared. While he still missed the old cuisine four years later, Safia also praised the emancipation restaurants and its converted owner, Erman. These emancipation restaurants offered, and I quote, one cuisine in the use of two nations, that means Jews and Christians, and included everything for everyone and in a superb fashion, unquote. Not only Jews had emancipated, they had gained most rights through the revolution in 1848, but as Safer wrote, also their cuisine. Intriguingly, his observations are confirmed by the fact that not one Viennese Jewish cookbook was published before 1938. Elsewhere in the Habsburg Empire, Budapest, Prague, Pressburg, possibly Brunner, such Jewish cookbooks catered to observant Jews, and won awards even at international fairs in Vienna. The German Empire saw a similar proliferation in Jewish cookbooks. Yet in Vienna, the capital of the imperial Habsburg Empire, cookbook authors apparently saw no need or market for them. From the 1850s on, Jewish, non-Jewish, official Catholic, and anti-Semitic newspapers, the only other widespread reports we have on culinary developments, mentioned fewer and fewer paradigmatic Jewish dishes, or what they considered as such. In 1893, for instance, readers encountered an ironic poem about a dream. In it, the author praised iconic Jewish dishes, which a Catholic high dignitary had refused to eat when visiting a Jewish millionaire. The Jewish dishes included the carp, the kugel, the goose, the shallot, a barley stew, the baches, which is the challah, or the layered cake known as fladen, which the author say, said, quote, could bridge the chasm between Christendom and Jews, unquote. 30 years later, most of these dishes were no longer regarded as Jewish. They had become Viennese and were routinely included in Viennese cookbooks. At the same time, linguistic differentiations began to disappear after 1850. Expressions for Jewish and non-Jewish religious holidays, dishes, and ingredients became increasingly interchangeable in Jewish, non-Jewish, and anti-Semitic newspapers and cookbooks. Baches, the Shabbat bread, was also known as braided bread. Made with or without milk, which means it's parf, it fit with kosher meals. Non-Jews ate it as dessert. Even recipes containing lard could be kosher. At the time, lard referred either to pork clarified butter, goose, or vegetable lard. Matzah, the unleavened Pesach bread and matzo meal were also called Easter bread, breadcrumbs, or semolina. Sholet, the barley stew, was now called richer. Easter referred to both Jewish Pesach and Christian Easter. Now, when Jews and non-Jews collectively invent, produce, name, sell, and consume food items, eaten sometimes for different reasons, Historical records become hard to decipher. In 1884, an article reported about Vienna's first international culinary art exposition. Note, we already call it culinary art. And the article listed iconic Viennese desserts and pastry chefs. For example, the exhibit of the Baker Guild, the author wrote, quote, astonishes by its variety of products, of which especially the gigantic Google hoops by Anton Meyer, 
The egg braids and fruit bread by Ignaz Kanter appear to please the public taste, creating without a desserts an image of true Viennese contentment and indulgence, unquote. Yet only contemporary Viennese would know why these specific pastries and bakers were singled out to represent the breadth of Viennese cuisine. Counters, universally popular braids and fruit breads, were in fact the Shabbat Baches and the Sukkot fruit breads from his famous Jewish bakery, which existed until the early 1930s on the so-called Matzes Island, Vienna's second district. Its population was 40% Jewish before 1938. At the first culinary art exposition in 1884, Vienna's cuisine was, was thus already exhibited and understood to be a collectively produced and collectively savored cuisine. And this included what was most important to us Viennese, our desserts. All this shared restaurants, shared cookbooks, shared terms, and shared dishes indicate that Christians and Jews had long met through food and foodways, with each making their contributions. This was to be expected. In 1850, the two groups had lived in close proximity with each other for decades. Since the late 1700s, the segregation by professions was increasingly eliminated, and Jews could thus study and learn any profession. Both groups acquired full citizenship rights in 1867. And before 1914, Christians and Jews increasingly moved to Vienna, their knapsacks filled with culinary ethnic traditions from across the empire. They studied, married, worked, shopped, converted, befriended, fought with, and employed each other. Exemplary for this culinary melange between 1790 and 1938 are the biographies of two prominent cookbook authors. Theresia Balov, a Catholic female cook, and Jakob Epstein, a Jewish male pastry chef, as well as the biography of a Protestant working class housewife, my own grandmother Agnes Wilczek, who lived on Matzes Island from the 1920s to 1960. The Catholic Theresia Balov was one of the first women to publish a Viennese cookbook. Selling out within three years of its publication in 1810, her cookbook, the female Viennese cook as she ought to be, was explicitly written for middle-class women. And in all of her four editions, Balov listed herself in the title as having been cooked to Freiherr von Arnstein. She obviously added this to the title to boost sales. The Arnsteins, however, were a prominent and aristocratic Viennese Jewish family who helped fund the Viennese Congress, for instance, and founded the National Bank and many still existing cultural Viennese institutions. Because I haven't found yet any additional historical records on Balov, being a woman and an artisan means her records most likely didn't survive, it is difficult to uncover direct culinary influences from her time at the Arnsteins. This is also true because recipes, just as any other cultural artifact, a symphony, a scientific theory, rarely reflect religious backgrounds. Sometimes, though, I can point to a Jewish influence in Balov's cookbook. Take her Jewish roast, for instance. Balov knew what she was doing when she roasted veal with milk and butter and served it with a sauce of sour cream, capers, and lemon peels. Disregarding kosher rules by mixing dairy and meat apparently meant little to the Arnsteins by 1800, capers and lemon peels reflected savory influences of the early traditional Viennese Jewish cuisine that Safia still remembered fondly 40 years later. The second cookbook author is Jakob Epstein. In contrast to the Catholic Balov, Epstein was Jewish. He came originally from Moravia and was a famous Viennese pastry chef, cookbook author, and manufacturer. Apparently, he was one of the first Viennese Jews to receive the imperial and royal privilege, akin to the British royal warrant. In Epstein's case, it was for dried vegetables, which he sold in his downtown store next to canned foods, jams, juices, mixed pickles, desserts, and his patented food processor. Epstein was at the forefront of his times. His products reflected revolutionary changes in food preservation and food processing, for which he received a medal at the 1873 Vienna World Exposition. In this city of desserts, Epstein also wrote one of the first and rare pastry cookbooks in 1860, titled The Viennese Pastry Shop, 
its main title, and his second volume, The Viennese Pastry Chef, indicate, indicate that Abstein had written primarily for professionals. And his publisher astutely advertised the books to trade schools, just when these became professional. Containing hundreds of recipes, Epstein's cookbooks shaped Viennese patisserie in numerous ways, in trade schools, pastry shops, gastronomical circles, as well as households. Just as Balov's recipes could not be reduced to her Catholicism, however, Epstein's culinary contributions were almost never related to his Jewish roots. He did, however, include the quintessential Jewish flouten, which according to the 1893 poem we had heard about, supposedly bridged all chasm between Jews and Christendom. The story of the Protestant Agnes Wilczek brings our food encounters and shared culinary legacies to the working class and the private home until 1938. Agnes was born in Moravia in 1891 and was sent to Budapest around 1905 to live with a Jewish family as housemaid and playmate to their handicapped daughter. Before 1914, the family moved to Vienna and took Agnes with them. As a single woman, she opened a small Viennese coffee house in the 9th district, where professional secular Jews or those who had converted lived and worked. She married in 1920, and in 27, they moved to Matzes Island, where she and her husband ran a small carpentry workshop. Living with the Budapest Jewish family and then settling next to Viennese Jewish neighbors and friends, stores and restaurants, Agnes had, of course, learned firsthand what was widely known in Vienna at the time, kosher rules and a shared cuisine. What she knew and liked about such dishes, menus, as well as ingredients, she adopted and adapted. And she handed all this down to her three daughters. Upon marriage, each received a copy of the Hess cookbook and her grandchildren, including myself, who by then knew nothing about Viennese Jewish culinary origins and influences. Agnes herself also used the cookbook, The Viennese Cuisine by Olga and Adolf Hess, which I'll refer to as the Hess from now on. Olga and Adolf Hess had published the first edition in 1913. Adolf belonged to a family owning several of the leading hotels in Vienna, and he and Olga led the first ever professional Viennese trade schools for innkeepers, cooks, housemakers, and home economics teachers. Their cookbook, the culmination of years of work and teaching, represented a cross-section of Viennese cuisine through all socioeconomic strata. Recipes came from culinary teachers, scientists, trade schools, restaurants, hotels, cooks, and housewives. Next to healthy, diverse fare that could be inexpensive and was tasty, the cookbook also offered modern nutritional information. The cookbook's scientific content, scope, comprehensiveness, and style of presentation the quality of its recipes, the contacts of its authors, but also post-World War I, nostalgia for the dissolved Austro-Hungarian Empire may explain its huge popularity in homes, trade schools, where it was the standard textbook for decades to come and abroad. The Hess went through 27 editions from 1913 to 1939 alone. Internationally, the League of the Nations, League of Nations, sorry, published a yearly catalog of the most notable and best 10 books from each country at the time. In 1925, the Hess cookbook was listed among Austria's best. Next to such illustrious and renowned names as Sigmund Freud, Franz Werfer, Arthur Schnitzler, or the surgeon Felix Mandel. As an authoritative example of the Viennese cuisine, the Hess also as I found out, epitomized the collective culinary legacy of Viennese Jews and non-Jews alike. But how? How did it do it? So we'll, let's, look a let's take a closer look at the cookbook and the aspects which you see listed here. One can trace the collective legacy in various ways, for instance, through the presence of recipes that one could use in kosher and stringent Pesach cuisine, just as I did in Urbana, but which for everyone else were simply dishes with or without certain ingredients. Think about it. At a time when cooks prepared almost everything from scratch, kosher cooking was simpler. Meat is not prepared with dairy. Everything else is parf, which means neutral. There are permitted and prohibited animals or animal products, such as pork, shellfish, or blood. There are slow cooking recipes for Shabbat, and there are recipes without leavening, 
flour and other fermentable ingredients for Pesach. But how does one find kosher recipes in a general Viennese cookbook? Knowing the names of dishes, cooks usually use the alphabetical index to locate a recipe. The Hess, however, also included a 35-page systematic index, listing recipes by types of dishes and ingredients to help cooks assemble, let me quote, the order of courses or dishes, or to cook something new, unquote. However, looking for dishes by ingredients, one could also locate the many recipes for kosher and Pesach dishes. Keywords help find recipes without dairy, flour, animal fats, various types of meat, or leavening, or recipes substituting for meat and dairy. Characteristic of the Viennese cuisine, there were few recipes for pork, which is already indicative, and plenty for beef, fish, lamb, and fowl. Almost every section included at least one recipe suitable for strict Pesach cooking. There were even recipes for boiled elderberries, imagine that, made with or without flour and milk. The systematic index may appear unremarkable, but its granular classification system is fundamentally only of use for kosher cuisine. Not even the strictest diets for the sick would need such detail. The Hess also offered two menu suggestions for each day of the year, an expensive and labor-intensive menu for full-time cooks and a cheaper labor-saving version for housewives. Here, cooks could easily avoid pork. Pork was rarely included in the cheap menu, and if it was, the second menu always offered an alternative to pork. Intriguingly, these distinct menus also reflect what wealthy, rather more secular Viennese Jews would eat in contrast to poorer, more observant Jews recently immigrated from the East. Another feature of a shared cuisine is the presence of previously typical Jewish and Christian dishes, and this is true for the Hess, except for the Flan. While Safia noted that the Sholet, the barley stew, had had no citizen rights in cookbooks in 1847, the Hess included three such recipes and a fourth under stews. To enjoy Sholet, in 1847, Safia stated that, quote, one had to liberate oneself of all prejudices, had to have emancipated the stomach, the tongue may not hold any hate against Jews, and the palate had to be at the height of its time and culture, unquote. By the interwar period, richer, as it was now called, was typical Viennese fare and remained essential for poor observant Jews. Neither permitted to work nor light a fire and cook on holidays, observant Jews used slow cooking dishes, including richer, that simmered on banked up fires or stayed warm in cooking boxes. Or they brought richer to local bakeries on Fridays to be picked up on Saturdays. The Hess also contains some typical Jewish dishes under traditional Yiddish names, such as cheap goose dishes, Others, such as baches or braided breads, kugels, rugelach, and hamantaschen, goose, and fish dishes, for example, gefilte fish, and pickled vegetables and fruits were listed by the then prevailing Viennese names. Names are important, and their presence or absence indicative. In this Catholic society, the names of religious holidays, Christmas, Easter, All Saints Day, etc., were routinely added to the names of dishes. As such, these were listed in Viennese cookbooks and of seasonal and financial significance for the hospitality sector. Yet in the Hess, neither recipes nor menus referred to religious holidays, be they Christian or Jewish. With Viennese Jews being the second largest religious group, at a minimum, it was a sensible marketing strategy to address the largest possible audience by including recipes, but excluding references to religious holidays. As noted, contemporary cooks knew alternate designations, names for ingredients and dishes, for instance, for lard, matzah, or baches. Recipes that today appear unsuited for kosher cooking may therefore have been totally appropriate at the time. In addition, being able to substitute ingredients was a valuable skill and a financial necessity and the Hess offered extensive advice. Its introduction, glossary, and recipes told how to substitute and suggested, for instance, replacing meat with plant broth, milk with water, 
and dairy or meat fats with margarine, which is particularly tricky in desserts. Many dishes thus became parf or kosher. Even cooking appliances could have different meanings. For Jews, it was nothing new when the Hess glossary explained how to construct and use cooking boxes, which had become essential during the fuel shortages of World War I, and suggested some recipes also containing richer ingredients. In contrast to non-Jewish housewives, observant Jews had long used insulated boxes in which hot dishes continued to cook without added fuel on religious holidays. Of course, we owe the content of the Hess to particular individuals who directly shaped the Viennese cuisine, but largely remain unknown. The last chapter of our cookbook, however, included sections of recipes for large groups, emergencies, and the sick. Careful reading of these sections revealed the names of Friedrich Skalitzer, Wilhelm Schlesinger, and Heinrich Reiche. One was murdered in the Holocaust, one managed to escape, and one helped to bring about the Holocaust. Here, the Viennese cuisine, the cookbook, and the city's culinary culture becomes visible as a collaborative endeavor, regardless of religious or ideological backgrounds. It is certainly reasonable that only two recipes for the sick contain pork, which is harder to digest. But the sections for large groups and emergencies also didn't contain it. This is surprising. The Viennese had consumed much more pork than beef since the early 1900s. Its consumption had doubled by 1936, and since 1940, pork had been almost as cheap as beef. Nor did recipes in these two sections combine dairy with meat, and most soups, all side dishes, and some desserts were parf. Moreover, for observant Jews, and for that matter Catholics who wanted to avoid meat on fasting days, it was convenient that emergency recipes explicitly separated meat from meat substitute dishes that were parf. Meat recipes included recipes for rolled eye, a type of blood flour. And in this rolled eye, literally red egg, we have an explicit link to Viennese Jew and the city's war and communal kitchens for the poor. Rolled eye, as the has explained, was a meat substitute invented by Dr. Friedrich Skalitzer and was patented in Austria in 1916 and numerous other countries, including the US. Because there was little to eat during World War I, Skalitzer developed an inexpensive and easily available staple, apparently when he experimented with plastics made out of blood. His rolled eye was a cheap, durable, and digestible foodstuff for which fresh animal blood was quickly frozen and evaporated in a vacuum. The odorless and tasteless powder still contained all the albumin and other constituent parts and was thus more nutritious than other blood products. It was such a revolutionary contribution to feeding the poor that Olga Hess's trade school for cooks and home economics teachers developed recipes for the city's communal kitchens, and these were included in the Hess. Scalicher's invention is also a perfect example of how secular Viennese Jews did not feel obliged to follow religious restrictions. Consumption of animal blood is not kosher. Skalitze, like many Viennese, was born to a Jewish family in Prague and moved to Vienna around 1900 to study chemistry. After 1938, he hid in Prague where he lived with his second wife and children. Denounced by neighbors, Skalitze was brought to the political prison camp in Theresienstadt and shot in late 1944. His wife, a devout Catholic, complained about his imprisonment, was sentenced, and died in the prison camp in 45. Skalitzer's two sons from his first marriage were murdered in concentration camps. Adolf and Olga Hess also called upon the Viennese expert of diets to contribute his recipes for the ailing. As a pioneer in the research of metabolism, nutrition, and diabetes, Dr. Wilhelm Schlesinger's lectures and recipes had a tremendous impact on the scientific literature, city policies, and professional and private cooks. Trained in general and internal medicine, Schlesinger headed several Viennese clinics and was the first professor to combine university lectures with practical exercises about diet and cooking. During World War I, he instructed physicians about correct diets. 
He published information about convalescent diets for the home, diets, I'm sorry, for the home, as well as fruit and vegetable diets for the public health department, and held, for instance, diet and cooking courses for brides at the People's University. Related to one of Vienna's oldest distinguished Jewish families dating back to the 1700s, Schlesinger had converted to Protestantism after his father died in 1896 and he had returned to Vienna. He and his daughter fled in 1939 and survived the Holocaust. To help physicians select an appropriate diet, the Hess cookbook included the nutritional values, the grams and calories of fat, protein, and carbohydrates for each recipe for the ailing. Otherwise, it was only the first recipe in each section. These nutritional values were based on the chemical analysis of Heinrich Reichel and Rudolf Bernhard. And the Hess lists both men as the most important collaborators for the cookbook. Reichel taught at Adolf Hess's trade school. Foremost, though, he was a physician and university professor of hygiene. He was one of Austria's most influential proponents of race, eugenics, and biology, and instrumental in making these topics popular in schools, museums, the sciences, and public policy. Reiche closely collaborated with eugenicists abroad when he argued against mixing, quote, the Jewish, unquote, with the equally fictitious North European race. And he trained a generation of eugenicists who later helped implement the genocide against Jews and others. Indicative of a simultaneously integrated as well as anti-Semitic Vienna, Reichel's work analyzed and supplied the nutritional values for dietary recipes by the Jewish Viennese scientist Schlesinger. Completely different from what we had heard earlier about Balov, Epstein, and Bilchek, these three scientists offer a darker glimpse into the collective nature of the Viennese cuisine as it existed before 38. Of course, the Hess did not exist in a vacuum. It mirrored a city in which Jews and non-Jews interacted daily through foodstuff. They owned or managed food-related businesses and shops, hospitality industry or soup kitchens, and they interacted, for instance, through servants, waiters, cooks, cookbooks, and cooking schools. We no longer have reliable statistics on how large the Jewish participation in food businesses was before March 38. There are several reasons for this. The census stopped cross-referencing religion with professions after 1910. Statistics by contemporary anti-Semitic authors are largely unverifiable. An unorganized organization of Jewish properties, as well as undocumented flight by Viennese Jews after March 38, frustrated even National Socialist record-keeping. Jewish participation in the food industry was extensive, though, given Jewish community reports, anecdotal evidence, recent research, restitution cases, individual biographies, and literary accounts. Jewish and non-Jewish Viennese also met in tea and soup kitchens run by the city and the Jewish community. They shopped in non-kosher and kosher stores. They purchased the many Viennese cookbooks published by Jewish authors. They were guests at each other's homes or worked there as servants and cooks who attended the servant and cooking courses founded by the Jewish Olivia or Otelia Bondi. Prior to marriage, wealthier Jewish women attended culinary seminars at the prestigious Hotel Bristol, as well as cooking schools, all part of being fashionable and bourgeois. It was equally fashionable for non-Jewish women to attend Viennese culinary lectures and cooking schools run by Jewish Viennese. From the mid-1920s, Alice Urba, who was Jewish, ran a successful culinary school called Modern Cooking Courses for professionals, housewives, modern girls, and bachelors. She gave widely advertised and popular lectures on Viennese classical and modern cuisine in the famous Café Landmann and elsewhere. She organized culinary exhibits, published recipes and menus in newspapers, offered home deliveries of nutritious and inexpensive menus, and in 1925 wrote her first cookbook with her half-sister, Sidonie Rosenberg. Rosenberg had been instrumental in starting Erbach on her culinary career. Erbach's husband had died early and left her and her sons destitute. In 1935, Erbach published her famous cookbook, How One Cooks in Vienna, 
A few years later, Rosenberg was murdered in Treblinka. Urbach managed to flee to the UK in 38, taking care of traumatized Jewish children there, and went on to the US in 46. The proof of the pudding, of course, is in the eating. A collective Viennese cuisine meant more than just participating in the food industry, food production, or cooking schools and cookbooks. While cooking or eating, non-Jewish Viennese clearly, certainly identified with the Viennese cuisine and its authoritative representation, the Hess. It was their cuisine, after all. Viennese Jews were no different. Historically speaking, they were instrumental in creating the public image of the Viennese cuisine up to and even beyond 38. As far back as Safir or August Silberstein in the 1850s, Jewish writers and artists helped to immortalize Viennese dishes, drinks, coffee houses, and vineyards. Whether persecuted or protected under National Socialism, Viennese Jews such as Bronner, Herz, Torberg, or Wehle composed songs, texts, and cabarets with culinary references during exile and upon returning to Vienna. And Viennese Jews certainly identified with the Viennese cuisine in their homes. They cooked and ate it. They saw no need to have separate Viennese Jewish cookbooks and even incorporated typical Christian dishes, such as the Catholic carnival donut, into Jewish children rhymes and religious holidays. My favorite here is the children rhyme that dates back to the late, uh, to about the 1880s. Zu Purim muss man Krapfen essen und den Hammer nicht vergessen, which translates badly into, for Purim you eat these typical Catholic donuts, carnival donuts, and don't forget the Hammantasch. Jewish Viennese continued to identify with the city's cuisine as refugees and survivors of the Holocaust. It was their cuisine, after all. Female Holocaust refugees, although they were allowed to bring very little, brought their Viennese cookbooks with them, including the Hess and handwritten recipe books. These included lovely combinations of Viennese, Hess, Christmas, and explicitly Jewish recipes, like the handwritten cookbook of Margarita Wolf, who fled to the US. Cooking Viennese dishes provided sustenance as food, memories, and cultural practice, but also as income when Margarita and many other female refugees and survivors made a living working as Viennese cooks and pastry chefs when first abroad. Those who had been too young before 1938 were taught by older female survivors and refugees abroad how to cook typical Viennese dishes either because they or their future husbands and in-laws expected it. Others, including Alice Urbach at age 91 in San Francisco, started teaching Viennese cooking courses. Refugees cooked dishes closely identified with the city whose inhabitants had expelled or tried to assassinate them. Both women and men still enjoyed eating traditional Viennese cuisine in exile. They didn't consider it as other or tainted. It was their Viennese cuisine. This is quite remarkable when you think about it. The same Holocaust survivors rejected other cultural products, such as the music of Richard Wagner or Richard Strauss as National Socialist, and spurned writing the cursive T with a horizontal slash because it resembled the Christian cross. In, 18, oh, Julia, in, in 1952, a New York Times book review tells of Clara Schlesinger, a Viennese Jewish refugee making a living teaching fine Viennese cooking in New York. Together with Olga Hess, Clara had edited and translated the Hess into English and published it as Viennese cooking. In a kind of code, the New York Jews could decipher, the review highlighted particular features of this cookbook, certain dishes, noodle desserts, the lack of leavening, the use of nuts instead of flour, and the only recipe explained in detail, a hazelnut cake that lacking flour, leavening, or fermentable ingredients could be served for Pesach, just as I did in 1997. Even national socialists caught on to this. In 1938, Alice Urbach's publisher forced her to rescind her rights to her renowned cookbook, How One Cooks in Vienna. In fall 1938, it was republished, under the same title, but listing a man, Rudolf Rösch, as author. Rösch accumulated accolades and royalties through seven editions until the 1960s. Quote, 
Yet my Jewish hands in the photographs stayed in the cookbook, unquote. Erbach said dryly after the war, and in the 1950s, her restitution claim for the cookbook was rejected. The attempt to Aryanize a famous and largely intangible Viennese culinary culture failed. National socialists may have raised Erbach's name as a Jewish representative of the Viennese cuisine, yet her recipes and hands continued to shape it for the next 30 years. And as we have seen, Erbach was literally only the tip of the iceberg. Over the preceding 150 years, the Viennese cuisine had become a collective creation, product and legacy of Viennese Jews and non-Jews alike. From the late 1700s, Jewish culinary involvements were persuasive, as were the collective Christian and Jewish efforts to create the famous Viennese cuisine. This happened against the backdrop of early Jewish emancipation, a largely secular Jewish population, and anti-Semitism. After 1938, systematic persecution of Jews culminated in the Holocaust and helped erase all knowledge about our common cuisine. Thank you. That was it. I'm going to switch my glasses. Okay. <laughs> okay. You kept it. So uh, we already have a question. Is there an English translation of the Hess cookbook? Well, uh, the 1952 edition that Clara Schlesinger brought out is completely edited for the American market. So it's, it's very different, much simpler. Lots of aspects are missing. No, the classical Hess, which, you know, it's hard for me to tell because there are so many editions also after the war, but at least until the 1950s, the interwar edition was still being republished. That classical edition was never translated. Um, I've actually talked to family members of the Hess, which I've been able to find, because I think it might be interesting to do that, to first republish it, second, republish it within the context of, you know, the Jewish Viennese contribution to it, and maybe translate it. The problem is, it's pretty big. Uh, I'd have to go around the corner, but I think it's something like 500 pages, small print, uh, not many pictures. If you then translate it, which publisher is going to pay for that? So I would love to work on this. I would love to do it, but I'm not sure it's possible in the market. You're getting lots of, ah, somebody, Judy said she has the 1952 edition. In English or German? Um, you know what? I'm going to turn off the, okay. no, no, no. Uh, the chat, Judy, if you want to talk about what you have, you can, I think, um, oh, you know what? You can unmute yourself, I hope. Yeah, you should be able to. Yeah. I'm going to turn on a picture just to see if I can see something. No, not yet. Uh, by the way, I you might have it in English. You have it in English, right? So it's a completely different thing. It's a different animal. And um, Klaus Schlesinger in the article, but maybe in the book, also explained why. She said it would be too much work. It would be too complex. It would take too much time uh, to do it the way it was done. Also within the US and of course, ingredients are different. Um, I've tried to, to trace Klaus Schlesinger. I've actually met with a family survivor who didn't know he was of Jewish background until last year in Vienna. But it looks like nothing survived of her papers and her family, which means I can't figure out more about how she changed the cookbook and why, but she did it together with Olga Hess, which again also tells you something about Olga. Does that answer your question? Uh, somebody suggested, by the way, you might want to try a Kickstarter for funding it. Yeah, time. but you know, maybe. Well, you know what? Uh, it has happened. I've heard of this in other disciplines where somebody puts out a Kickstarter, which and they get enough interest and there's enough money that they, they're able to support putting the, the project together. Um, oh, no, maybe. I can tell you, I mean, you know, I wait until later. I can tell you an anecdote uh, of one example where I found 
records that someone actually tried to do a Jewish Viennese cookbook before World War One, and tried exactly that, the old version of one of those um, campaigns raising funds and failed because there was no interest in it. Or nobody knows, nobody participates. I mean, that also happens too. I'm not, you know, trying to... I don't know. But, it's, a, it's a possibility, uh, but I don't know if I want to do the... The work. Yeah, I know, I know. There's many, many things involved. Uh, James inquired, "Would you tell us about your work as a Holocaust restitution historian?" Okay, so I worked for the Jewish community and actually worked for their center that supported Holocaust survivors and victims. And I had two responsibilities. One, just about a year before I arrived there, the community had found in an abandoned building about a million and a half documents that were partially related to the Holocaust and older. And they wanted me to reconstruct and rebuild the archives of the Jewish community. The archives of the Jewish community was closed down in 1938. It was the largest in the world, Jewish community wise. The National Socialists closed it down and then no one really knew what happened. And as it turned out in the late forties, early fifties, the then representatives of the Jewish community without asking the members, shipped the remaining parts of the archives to Israel, not as a donation, but to deposit it as a show of support for Israel. And almost no one knew about it. So I was asked to rebuild the Jewish archive in Vienna and then worked with the Holocaust Museum very closely to go to Israel and see what's there and then reunite them at least on microfilm and digitally. The Jewish community then tried to get the records back and that was denied. The other part was Holocaust restitution work. And um, on the one side, I worked on a huge research project that was trying to look at whether the Jewish community of Vienna itself was restituted appropriately after the war, either for organizations, for real estate, for synagogue, um, religious objects, for any wealth assets, books. And uh, the second one, restitution-wise that I worked on was the first ever successful case of challenging a restitution decision from the 1950s. It involved a palace in Vienna. We represented one part of the family was in England. One of the problems with restitution cases is the family. Sorry? No, I don't, go ahead. Don't worry. Okay, no, I'll, I'll keep it short. So we're actually able to uh, win that case. The palace was returned with all its problems. So I worked on that part and I worked on the huge restitution research part of whether the Jewish community itself ought to get back items or money. Wow. How did, uh, accessory queen, <laughs> how did the world wars affect the variety of ingredients and recipes between scarcity, substitutes and rationing? Uh, that is a huge topic, and I, I really cannot speak to it. I, I can hint. So World War I was a catastrophe. Uh, I mean, the food situation in Vienna was, was horrendous. Uh, we actually even had food donations from Switzerland uh, during and after the war. Um, almost nothing was available. People were starving. Lots of soup kitchens, Jewish and non-Jewish, open to everyone. Uh, so, of course most things were not available and the situation was not very good in the 20s and 30s. You have to think of Austria being reduced from a huge empire to a tiny little mountain-based country, 70% mountains, with most of its agricultural industrial base being gone now. Uh, you had the bad economic times in the 20s because the country had been you know, cut down to a small size. Then you had the depression, then you had the civil war where the Social Democrats and communists were fighting already the proto-fascists in Austria in the early 30s. You had a civil war. Then Hitler came in. Then you had the war. Then you had 10 years of occupation. Then you had rest, uh, restoration payments uh, to the Soviet Union until the mid-60s. So the situation wasn't very good until then. Um, I'm not an expert on it, but I can tell you what I noted. The little bit I looked in the 40s, very interestingly, during the National Socialist regime, the German kitchen was introduced, the German kind of recipes, the German kind of cookbooks. Um, and after the war, I just saw glimpses of also some of the American influences came because, you know, we had four occupation forces, the British, the French, the Americans, and the Soviet. 
Um, but, you know, my mother grew up on Matzis Island and, you know, end of the war, people had on average 600 calories a day. Uh, 99% of the infants born in Vienna after the war in 45 died. Um, if you had in the Soviet uh, occupation zone dried peas, you were lucky and the dried peas were filled with worms. So you had to put them in buckets of water so that the worms would die. You fish out the worms and then you could do something with it. Um, so... Absolutely. Food shortage is tremendous. But I cannot talk in detail about it because that's not my area of research yet. Does that help? Wow. wow. Um, Penelope commented, she said, last year, the Court Theater presented Tom Stoppard's new play, Leopoldstadt, right. which he wrote in response to his discovery that he was Jewish from a Viennese family. Yes. She said, this program tonight closely dovetails that play and with the supporting lectures that the court presented um, on Zoom. She said, this is fascinating. Oh, thank you very much. I mean, yes, I was I was actually in England at a meeting when I saw the announcements of about the play and couldn't go and then COVID happened. Yes, Leopoldstadt is Matzis Island. Um, so very interesting and I, I should watch it. I haven't. Wow. So now when you were talking about this um, 600 calories a day, this was during peacetime? Yes, that was at the end of the war in the next, I don't know how many months, six, seven months. There was no food available. Um, and I'm sure the occupation forces were still trying to organize things. The Russians themselves had nothing because the German forces had decimated their country. Um People ate depending on which region you were on and which occupation zone. So my mother, Matzis Island, was a Russian zone, so you had almost nothing. The American zones might have had more, but on average, the first months in Vienna, that's the statistics I've seen. Wow. Because I remember reading about, not that this is the same, of course, but the siege of Leningrad. Uh -huh. And there people were, if you, you know, 500 calories a day, and then later on, you know, it was a little bit more, but people were just like, like yeah, they, they were starving. They, they just to avoid scurvy, they were boiling the needles off of pine trees. And I have to admit, unfortunately, because of the anti-Semitism and the propaganda and the, you know, incessant pounding into the brains of Viennese and Viennese kids, but also Austrians and Germans of race ideologies after the war, people were resentful because they thought they had had it worse than the Jews, particularly the Jews who fled uh, because of the hunger and so on. And so um, that became an anti-Semitic uh, comment that was heard frequently, you know, I guess. Um, in fact, uh, Accessory Queen said she's going to email you her husband is researching civilian rationing in Germany and Austria in the world wars and after 1955. Oh, perfect. And, yeah. And if you want, and if your husband wants to come and talk about that sometime, I'd be happy to see that. Um, well, can I make a comment to that? It's sure, actually, sure, sure. Of course. Because the first time I, I tried to talk about this was in 2008 in Poland, which at that time hadn't really dealt with its past. So the reception of my dears was glacial. It was the Academy of Science in Warsaw. And as part of that history, which wasn't quite as developed yet, I also talked about food resistance. And what I meant with that was in Vienna, I saw that it appears to have been women who during the war offered food resistance in terms of helping Jews through food, smuggling it to them, giving to them like my grandmother did, sending packages, cooking uh, stews for the people who were in um, collective apartments. And I compared it to Warsaw and the Warsaw Ghetto, where, according to the records I'd seen, it looks to be, have been men and children who were involved in food resistance because the men were sent out during the day to work and came back and could maybe bring something back. And the children particularly were smuggled through the underground uh, canals and tried to bring in food. Uh, so I was talking about those two things um, and then also the use of starvation as a method to annihilate the Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto and completely failed at that conference. Um, the reception was not encouraging, but that was the first time I talked about the topic. Um, and Anne-Marie commented, or 
she says, after each of the world wars, farming and supply chains were disrupted, so the hunger lasted for years. Even Great, Great Britain was on ration coupons for years after World War II. And in absolutely. fact, we had a talk on that earlier this year. Right. No, no, absolutely. No question. Uh, but of course, and in, in the U.S. had, right? But of course, it is different whether a country is directly decimated uh, by a war or involved in a war. And then um, Austria also lost most of its industrial agricultural rich lands, you know, in 1918, and then had to figure out how to feed itself with 70% being mountains and forests, uh, and then all the turmoils of history. Um, but absolutely, I mean, all the countries involved experienced that for long periods of time and longer, the more destruction there was. And the accessory queen commented, you're quite correct, Anne-Marie, rationing lasted in England until 1955. German rationing, though not scarcity, ended in 1950. Mm -hmm. Yeah, don't know. about right? Don't know. Not an expert on Germany. Sorry. I, I don't. I, I, I know. I, I know my well, German background, but I know my relatives were sending food packages and whatever. I don't even know how long, but it was something well, we, for a number of years. For instance, after the war, my mother volunteered for care and care from the U.S. sent hundreds of thousands, maybe it's millions, I don't know, food packages to Austria for years. Very, very essential, including antibiotics. And that's the only reason my aunt survived, because she caught tuberculosis as a medical student, you know, the sister of my mother. And the only reason she was survived is because my mother volunteered for care and got the antibiotics through care from the U.S. and my aunt survived to good long life and family. Wonderful, wonderful. Are there any other questions? Now, um, Suzanne, uh, I, I meant to mention this earlier, but she last year got a Sophie Coe Award for a paper she wrote related to this topic. Um, that was from the... Um, Oxford Symposium of Food and Drink, which um, I have been following for the last couple of years. But I didn't put the two and two together until you sent me your bio about something. Wow. But the, the, the person who won that prize yesterday, it's 1,500 pounds, you know, British pounds, but there were 80 submissions. Right. And right. so to come to the top in a group that big uh, is special. Thank you. And you know, what's really special about it is it's the oldest uh, food related conference and symposium. And as we know, food history has long been ignored, long, 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 and was not accepted. So it's the oldest, most established, most renowned. Uh, so it was really, really, really special. And it was nice to get the money. I mean, we it's the most you can get in academia, really. And I have saved it for a vacation when I retire. So. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. And you do go to Vienna from time to time, don't you? I go back to do research uh, usually twice a year, definitely once and usually twice. Also, actually, I mean, I don't know if you want to see, I have one more slide that talks a little bit about the future and a little bit more of the positive parts of this. That would be wonderful. Yeah. So let me just switch. So what you see here is in the middle is a drawing of my niece who at that time was three years old and she is baking uh, a Viennese dessert and she is now finishing her apprenticeship to become a pastry chef. She's the great granddaughter of Agnes Milchek you've heard about. And what's interesting is that this year as part of her pastry chef education, she was already taught the recipe of Fladen. The flour on this Jewish typical dessert had disappeared with the war completely, completely. Uh, three years ago, and you see on the bottom on the left side of the slide, uh, the Demel Cafe, which is one of the very famous traditional royal and king coffee houses in Vienna, reintroduced this as Jewish dessert. And now the pastry chefs and future pastry chefs are actually learning it. And on the right, you can see uh, a professor of, of patisserie who contacted me after my uh, documentary on the history of Viennese Jewish contribution to Viennese cuisine. And we are now going to collaborate. And I don't know if people are interested in it. She's doing an online 
Excellence, so workshops, and she wants to focus the English ones on the Viennese Jewish contribution to the Viennese cuisine, and hopefully particularly be of interest to descendants of Viennese Jews to take her baking courses on Viennese desserts. Um, she has just had some medical issues, so I think the English workshops will start in fall. But I found that encouraging to see kind of a little bit is coming back, a little bit is being recognized, and it is being introduced as part of the education of the future generation, at least of pastry chefs, if not, you know, um, Viennese cooking in general. Well, you know, give us the information. We'll at least help push it along. You know, I will once. I mean, down here, you can see you can either contact me. Oh, or excellent. Got right. it. But you can also, I mean, because she has been having some medical issues, she's going to start on this in fall in English. Uh, so I can push it out to you again if you wanted to. Yes, we'd love it. We thought a lot of the, I mean, at least all the Jewish refugees and Holocaust survivors that I know and their families, they all still cling to culinary traditions. And I think they might really be interested in learning more, getting reacquainted, introducing ideas. So I thought it was a marvelous suggestion of hers. Right. And it's, you know, everybody eats. Right, exactly. If we're if fortunate enough, we eat. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's one of the more, you know, neutral topics you yes. can bring to the table nowadays. Yes, absolutely. Well, Suzanne, thank you so much. It's been a we pleasure. appreciate your coming out tonight. And uh, thank you for having me. Huh? Thank you for having me. And anyone who has questions, ideas, or suggestions, or anything else, please send me an email. I love hearing from people. And I do, which is really interesting. You know what? The people I hear from, from across the globe, tend to be all Jewish background. They, they read it, they hear about it, they make the effort to contact me. Uh, so it's really nice. I love hearing from people. Well, we'll help you. And, uh, and Ingrid, who does have a, who is a pastry chef, said that her dream was to study pastry in Vienna. Oh, perfect. No, so maybe I'll get her together with Gertrude. That would be wonderful. Please Thank write. you so much. Pleasure. Bye-bye. Have a good summer, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.